0: listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Have you heard? The PBI Podcast Network is expanding with a new feed. Want to learn about the world of in-house pro bono? Stay tuned for our new program and listen to chief legal officers discuss the importance of pro bono and equal access to justice. Today's guests are Nancy Anderson and Arusha Gordon from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. We spoke with them about the National Nonpartisan Equal Protection Coalition, and how pro bono lawyers can advance and defend the right to vote. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Nancy Arusha, welcome to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks.
0: So we're actually having a number of firsts today that you may not know about. First, you're the first guest to come here to our studio, which is actually a conference room at our worldwide headquarters in Washington, DC. Other guests have called in on the phone, so that's exciting for us. And you are our first guests, so it's the first time that we've done a duo other than uh, we've done in-house podcasts. So we've, we've done threesomes and it's been fine. So it's super exciting for us. And producer Dave, I'm sure, is up for the challenge. So with that, let's jump right in. Um, could you tell us about your backgrounds and your journeys to the Lawyers
1: Committee? So I'm uh, Nancy Anderson, and I am the Director of Pro Bono and Legal mobilization for the Lawyers' Committee. And I have been there for over 17 years, shocking as that may be. Um, But in terms of how I got to the Lawyers' Committee all those years ago, um, I actually had a job at a law firm coming out of law school, and I turned it down, much to the chagrin of my parents because I decided I wanted to pursue public interest. And so I ended up with the US Department of Health and Human Services for a bit doing welfare law. And then I was at the American Bar Association um, working on children's issues and homeless advocacy, actually uh, working somewhat with Esther Lardent, the founder of PBI. And then after that, I came to the Lawyers Committee.
2: And I'm Arusha Gordon. I have been at Lawyers Committee for about three years. Um, And currently, I'm associate counsel in the legal mobilization project, uh, which covers a few different issue areas that we work in. Um, And when I was graduating from law school, I was really, I I knew I wanted to do something that had a racial justice focus. And I also knew that I wanted kind of a multitude of tool sets to be used in the work that I was going to engage in. Uh, I wanted to do litigation, but I also wanted to work at a place that uses policy as an approach to to advancing the uh, social justice issues, and then also a place that has programmatic, organizing, kind of engages with the grassroots. And so Lawyer's Committee for Civil Rights hit all of those things, and so I was thrilled to start out as a fellow, uh, and then move into an associate counsel role.
0: So since Nancy mentioned switching gears, um, as she was plotting her career, what, what attracted you to the public interest sector?
1: That's a good question. I think I just realized I wanted to make a difference. And um, in all honesty, I loved going to UVA law school, but I didn't like law. And so most of what you learn in law school, at least at UVA at the time, was corporate type law, and I had no interest. And my then boyfriend, now husband, was a big public interest guru. And he had a huge impact on me deciding to change gears and pursue public interest.
0: Anything to add?
2: Why public interest? Yeah. I think I've always kind of been driven towards public interest, and that's probably just um, because of my parents uh, are both teachers and and have always encouraged uh, public service. I think for a long time I thought I was going to do something more international, and so I actually spent some time in Cairo and Paris before deciding to come to law school in the states to focus on domestic civil rights issues, and I think there was just a realization I had that to really have a big impact, it's important to work in one's own community, and looking at the issues we currently have in the United States, I realize there's just plenty of work to do uh, through our own state and federal governments.
0: I think people are always interested in hearing about what attracted people to purpose-driven work as their primary functions. So. Hard to believe, but there really are people who are not familiar with the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. So could you tell us about the organization, who you are, and what you do generally?
1: So the Lawyers' Committee was founded in 1963 at the request of President Kennedy and the Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Um, And it came about after uh, Governor Wallace stood in the steps of the University of Alabama and was defying the Supreme Court in Brown v. Board of Education the subsequent case um, requiring desegregation. Um, And so uh, President Kennedy brought 250 of the country's lawyers to the White House and said, you will be the Lawyers' Committee, and the the goal was to get the private bar engaged and also to care that the rule of law was being defied in the South, at least during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, And so since that time, the Lawyers' Committee has worked on civil rights issues. Um, voting rights, housing discrimination, environmental issues, uh, education, employment discrimination, criminal justice sort of you know the broad range of of civil rights issues um, and we do impact litigation but we also have impact pro bono projects and also a big uh, public policy department and my role is uh, director of pro bono is to work with our staff attorneys as well as the law firms in the development and then placement of our cases and then also working with our staff on our impact uh, large scale pro bono projects of which one is election protection.
2: And I'll just say as an active litigator at Lawyers Committee that I just love working with our pro bono partners and I don't know where we would be without them. Um, We're filing two briefs today. And they're both really exciting briefs, at least I think they are. Uh, and you know, we worked ha- hand in hand with uh, our pro bono partners, and are getting them out the door, and hopefully they'll have a real impact um, once they're filed.
1: Yeah, and I did fail to mention that one key point. One of the things that really differentiates the Lawyers Committee from other public interest legal organizations is that our mission is dual fold. One is to promote and work towards equal justice, but the other half of that is to do so by marshalling the resources of the private bar. So on everything that we do, we work with volunteer lawyers.
0: that is an awesome testimonial to the power of pro bono and we did not plan that in advance
2: so i'm
0: shameless in my self-promotion but we didn't so i (laughs) am
2: very appreciative of our pro bono especially right now because if we didn't have pro bono partners there's no way i could be here today because i would be stuck rereading a brief rather
0: than (laughs) yeah underwater for sure so that's a win-win win-win so let's pivot a little since we're going to laser focus on election protection do you also call that EP, or is that we just call a it thing? EP. Okay, and,
1: and I'm sure we are going to reference it. Great, EP <laughs> great. In just a few minutes.
0: Yeah. So if we lapse into EP, that's what we're talking about. Yes. Election protection. So when, it, um, when and why was um, EP started? And you know, what is it? What is election protection?
1: Uh, so election protection is the nation's largest nonpartisan. It's a very critical nonpartisan voter protection coalition. Um, and the Lawyers' Committee is a lead organization, but we work with many, many other state, local, um, and even national other public interest groups that are a part of this coalition. And it assists voters in um, nonpartisan partisan civic, inva- civic engagement organizations with problems um, and guides them through the voting process. And it's available all year, but the centerpiece is our program on Election Day certainly and leading up to it. Um, It was founded um, after the 2000 election fiasco, um, but it probably hit its stride in 2004 when we had our first national um, election protection program, and at its centerpiece is a national voter hotline that voters can call to ask questions about any number of things or if they're um, experiencing problems trying to vote. Um, they can try to get some assistance in getting answers and, and possibly even help. Um, and then we also have a volunteer uh, legal field program on election day where we have voters out in the field who are also gathering information and, and assisting voters.
2: Yeah, I think our election protection program is really effective and also a lot of fun to work on. Um, especially you know, for instance, working on the hotline, it's what I appreciate about it is I spend a lot of time doing impact litigation and working on these more macro issues, big change, you might not see the result of your case you filed for three years, you might spend two years investigating one issue, blah, blah, blah. Election protection, you get to help voters on that day and, and also know the result of it. You know, many times you put down the phone and you helped that voter cast their ballot. Um, and that's a really, really satisfying when a lot of the work we do there's not kind of that instant gratification
0: so let's go back a little just to set the stage because not everyone will remember hanging chads and you know what went on in, in in 2000 so what was the impetus like what was the what were the problems that the effort is trying to solve and and attack
1: that was a long time ago, <laughs> wasn't it? Sixteen years ago. So, the trying to remember the specific instances of what happened, I have to tick back. Or just, but right, but or just the gen- yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the general takeaway was for those of us who don't remember or who were too young to remember is that our our at least our presidential election wasn't decided until December, and then by the Supreme Court. Um, and part of that was because the 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 votes that were counted in. Florida and in other states were so close, and then within the state of Florida, just as an example, there were inconsistencies in how ballots were counted, in um, the hanging chads, which is an old-fashioned voting machine where some of the ballots weren't counted because the poll hunch didn't take out all the whatchamacallits, and this i this is where I'm not an expert. But there were lots of problems. and. And I think a lot of people walked away being very, very frustrated. And so um, election protection was created to be able to help folks either get the answers they needed in advance um, and also to respond on election day. It, it, it often could just take a phone call from maybe an expert to someone say, who's working a polling place saying, hey, this is a problem, can you deal with it? Um, and also EP, an important part of EP is that we learn from past problems. And so that during the year, in between elections, our folks and our coalition partners are working with election administration officials to solve problems or prevent problems. And being able to learn about those problems and track them then helps future elections run more smoothly.
0: It seems like it's a really smart part of the effort that not only are you helping people and solving problems in the moment, and maybe a little longer term if things are, you know, turned into a bigger issue than what can be solved with a phone call or, or something like that. But the learning that you gather then is actionable in terms of leading to future improvements. And if you don't have that, boots on the ground, immediate learning, you don't know what needs to be fit. You're not informed, right? And, and you can't be proactive because you're constantly reactive. Yeah. So it, right. it really gives you a leg up.
2: And I think that's one of the things that also sets election protection apart from some of the more partisan efforts that were this established organization and coalition that's there every single day of the year, and we get to carry our data over. Um, so a lot of the times, you know, more political campaigns might get data, but then the campaign is over, and so that data kind of gets lost. Whereas, you know, we'll track it, we'll go back and look, we'll see which precincts had problems. Um, we'll use the data we get from our hotline to advocate for better voting policies or um, other changes.
0: So you mentioned that EP is. A coalition effort that there are a number of organizations involved and who are they we don't have to tick-tock each one but in general who are they and how do you all work together because sometimes yes it's better to work together but that can create inefficiencies and collaboration can be an ideal but it can be hard to actually implement so how does it work
2: we have national partners state-level partners, local partners, partners who are affiliated with tribal organizations. We have partners kind of at every, every stage, and we do work, uh, you know, EP is very collaborative, and so depending on who the partner is, that kind of determines how we work with them. Um, so if it's a local grassroots organization, we might defer to them on where, where there's been problems in the past, which, which counties really have not been friendly to making sure that voters have access to the ballot box. If it's a national level partner, our conversation might be different. Maybe it's a report or um, you know, bringing in more volunteers to our call centers uh, located in DC or, or whatever it is.
1: And I think um, one of the benefits of, of election protection being 12 years old is that all the organizations that have been working on an EP over those times that we've all fallen into sort of a rhythm and a pattern, and so um, it is well established that the National Lawyers Committee is the one that's sort of putting all the the pieces into place, sort of the the big infrastructure, the hotline, the online um, database where we track all these complaints, and that. We're the ones who are tracking all the different local and state programs that may be going on, and you know we're limited staff. So if there is a, a national civil rights organization that has a long-standing um, partnerships in a state or work, and they're like, "Hey, we want to run, we want to do a program in Louisiana or Alabama or Mississippi," we're like, "Great! Here's the phone number. Please promote it." And then on election day, they'll get access to those, um, you know, calls coming in from their state. So. Um, It it really varies, and and even in some states, it may be that the local partner's like, we don't have the resources to do anything, but we'd love you to come in and organize a field program, um, and we'll put your phone number out. So it really varies, but I I do think 12 years into it, that's that's in part why this thing runs so smoothly at this point.
0: Yeah, working out the kinks, right? Right. Maturing, learning building credibility, I think all these things are really important to this effort, but they're also common denominators in building long-term, sustainable, whether it's public interest, social justice, pro bono programs, there's certain common denominators or best practices, and they work um, for a reason. So let's dig in and talk specifics about how EP deploys Pro bono lawyers. And you talked a little bit about helplines, field programs, other things. So let's kind of put some flesh on the bones and talk about what this means.
1: Yeah, and you know, when we were talking about our partners, we were talking about public interest groups just a minute ago. Um, but law firms are critical to the success of election protection. EP would not be successful, hands down, no question, if we didn't have our law firm and volunteer. Um, legal volunteers across the country so those folks out there listening we need you (laughs) seriously Um, but volunteer lawyers are used um, primarily um, in two ways and we we use them in other ways but it is to staff the national voter hotline um, and then also to do these field programs now um, there are three national voter hotlines Um, one that we run is the 866R vote which is um, primarily English Um, And then we have the 888-VE-VOTA, which is run by the National Association of Latino Elected Officials, which is our Spanish language. Um, And then we also have an Asian language at 888-API-VOTE, which is um, run by the Asian American Justice Center, the AAJC, and then also API-A-VOTE. And so for the 866-R-VOTE hotline, which on Election Day we will have... I think 15, 17, something like that, um, call centers across the country, primarily housed at law firms. So trained legal volunteers, which can also be in addition to lawyers, paralegals, legal assistants, and law students, um, sit through a three to four-hour shift and take calls for voters. Um, that hotline is active year-round, and it will be answered by live legal volunteers starting probably in early December at our office in Washington, D.C. So for those listening from uh, Washington, we're going to need your help sooner rather Maybe than November. later. It, did I? You said December. Oh, December. I meant to say September. <laughs> September. It'll be live in September. Soon a couple weeks. Right? Election Day, right? I think I'm in denial, but it's already yeah. August 3rd, yeah. which yeah. is, yikes. <laughs> Um, So, we use uh, Legal Volunteers for that, and then we also use Legal Volunteers for our field programs, which are across the country, and Arusha, you've done some of that work, right? Yeah. So, we do deploy Legal Volunteers
2: out to different states as well, Uh, so, for instance... In states. In states. I'm sorry. We don't send lawyers across. Right. Right. you know, across state lines to do this work. So if you are an attorney, paralegal, legal assistant working in a state with an EP program, or if you're interested in creating one, um, we will, you know, at times send volunteers out to monitor uh, voting at the polls itself. Uh, And of course you're trained on that. So uh, that can be a lot of fun because you get to engage with the voters on a face-to-face basis you can see a lot of things happening. You're also kind of this first line of defense if something goes wrong or if there's a violation of a voting rights. You're kind of armed with the information to speak up and say, "Hey, this is a problem. This is, you know, impeding someone's right to vote. Uh, and what can we do about it?"
0: I also like that you mentioned um, office space and in-kind resources because I think sometimes that's an under Recognized um, leg of the stool to make these things work. Yeah. We need the time, we need the expertise, we need the people power, but we also need other things. And people can provide space and phones and phone lines and food and coffee and these are in, you know, copying services and uh, Wi Fi and all these things are really valuable. And when you're thinking about a huge effort, you have to think about all these aspects too. And, and how could you run a huge hotline effort in many cities if you have no place to put people and no yeah. mechanism to do the phone calls and phone forwarding? And it's, it's a lot to put together. No, so, absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I was just counting up. I mean, I think at the moment we are um, looking at having 21 call centers live on election day and I think 19 of those will be at law firms. Now, the the numbers are somewhat in flux because we are still finalizing some of our local call centers, but 19 different call centers at law firms. Um, That's a tremendous commitment and a help to us because those call centers, if they're live only on Election Day, have to be set up and ready to go on Monday to be tested. For some of the national call centers, which are based in D.C., New York, and San Francisco, they have to be live the following Thursday or Friday to be tested. So law firms are not only contributing the space and you know the technology and the food, but also the people to help make that run. Um, and so it's just from the call center side alone is is tremendous. How do you decide
0: where to have call centers? It's gotta be some combination of need and available pool of humanity to staff them. So what's the sort of calculus ratio? Is there a recipe?
1: Well, in 2004, when we were first creating the program, we looked at cities um, in part where there were large legal centers, lots of big law firms, Mm because that's the market that the Lawyer's Committee traditionally works with. Um, and so that's how we, we initially had call centers set up in New York, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, L.A., you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and interestingly enough, over time, many of those firms that signed up in 2004 are still doing it. And when they set up, step up every two years, because we do have a large national program with every federal election cycle, um, we're delighted to have them back. Um, It is interesting because for example in Houston we have a call center now and the first time was in 2014 because we now have a a strong local field program and a local leadership team which is another way um, volunteer lawyers um, can participate through our election protection leadership committees. They wanted to have a small call center there to be able to take the calls locally um, which is fabulous. Um, so, you know, it's just that combination of exactly what you were saying, of, of where there's the need and then where are there the folks and, and the places that can, can house it. But the beauty of technology is that we can decide where the calls go. So, you know, the Houston call center, they just get Houston calls. And if they get too many, we know exactly where those calls are going to roll over to and that call center will look, work closely with the Houston folks on any hit, you know issues that may come up from. Houston. Yeah,
2: I I think that's one thing we're kind of exploring and continuing to grow is almost sister programs where perhaps um, an attorney in a different state, you know, in New York or California, perhaps has ties to another state that historically has a lot of voting problems. Not to say that New York and California don't have their share of voting problems, Um, but we will have, you know, it sometimes we'll use that as a model. So maybe you're an attorney working in a certain office, but you have a background in Virginia and you want to help us prepare our frequently asked questions or other election materials, we'll rely on volunteer attorneys to help prepare those materials. And of course, you don't have to be in the state to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's good to be nimble, right, to reallocate your resources and address needs and and be flexible. So what types of support do you provide? pro bono lawyers who want to get involved. I'm sure most of them are not election law experts, and there has to be processes in place that people get trained or there's help on the day of, so what kinds of support do people there's,
2: have? Uh, we've we've really taken our training very seriously this past, I would say the past two years, we've really tried to give a lot of thought to how we train people, and um, so we've developed a comprehensive training that's kind of streamlined, so you get the information you need either as a hotline volunteer or a field volunteer. Um, and there's also a system where some volunteers who might be a little bit more engaged will become election protection captains. And so those captains might have a little bit more of a training and a knowledge base. Um, but yeah, everyone kind of gets training as, as to their needs um, the, you know, and how they're volunteering.
1: Yeah, no. So the uh, all volunteers have to go through a one and a half hour training. Is it still one and a half, or is it moved to two? It's one and a half. One it's and a half hours. hours a half. Um, they a lot of those will be on demand online this year. Some will be in person, either at a physical place or with a um, live webinar. Um, but everyone must complete that, um, and then they sign up for a well, they sign up for their training and a shift at the same time. But then they participate in their shift. Um, and so in addition to the training, though, there are uh, written materials on every state. So that's the frequently asked questions. It's a six to seven page document that answers probably 80 to 90 percent of the voters' questions. Um, and if the question that comes in or to the call center or if there's a field volunteer who is, you know, at a polling place and there's a bigger problem than a, like, what photo ID need do I need to bring into the polling place, um, it goes up the the food supply line or the command chain, so to speak. So if you're at a call center, there are these captains who are literally roving around and the volunteer just has to raise their hand. And the captain is right there to assist the volunteer. If it's um, more difficult, then the captain will take over. And in some cases, if it's you know extremely complex um, or worrisome that might you know require a, a call to the, the Secretary of State's office to say, you've got a big problem, it'll go up to our National Command Center where you've got the big you know, voting experts. Um, and it's similar in the field. So, like, you know, if there's a problem, they call into their local legal command center, um, and then there you've got your captains and your other experts who will help um, deal with that issue. And of course, our field programs are working closely with our national call centers um, on election day. So there's, you know, a big line of support up and down for volunteers. And, and one of the things that I think the good things about the training is not only is it trying to give you a sense of the types of questions that you'll be asked, but we've also try to um, help them see what they're gonna do. Like, you're gonna walk in, you're gonna sit down at a desk, I don't, the phone's ringing, there's right. a computer, what am I supposed to do? I mean, we, we help walk them through that so that it's not just a complete shock and I, I don't understand, so.
0: Yeah, you know. I, I think, from my experience, I think people end up feeling extremely comfortable. That it may sound in the abstract, challenging and remote and foreign from your expertise, but the questions For the most part are quite answerable and you have materials and we're able to look things up and we're able to answer things and then there are human resources if things get out of uh you know slightly beyond that as nancy said it's it's definitely triaged in a way that you could kind of as things get more complicated or rare right you go up the food chain that way your training doesn't need to be overwhelming because you're not educating for things that have a remote possibility of occurring, and I think it is a testament to how big a difference you can make. Yeah. Sometimes things are quite basic, but they make all the difference. Right. They they aren't basics to the person calling. They need information. Yeah, and, and
1: I'm I'm glad you said that because you know one thing that we we do try to make our volunteers aware of is like not every call that comes in is going to be you know, oh, the polls aren't working, or there's a police officer who's intimidating us, or, you know, all the big, maybe really potentially interesting and sexy things, a lot of them are gonna be basic questions. You know, I didn't, where do I, am I registered? Where do I vote? Those are very basic. But sometimes voters can't find that. I think uh, think the
2: question, where's my polling place, is something like 70% of the calls we get, which is so satisfying to just be like, answer the call, give them their information, they're off to vote, and just to do like 10 of those in a row, and you feel like, you've made a difference, if not you know, on the national scheme, um, to that one person. And and we do talk to voters. I was talking to a voter a couple days ago, and he's elderly. Um, He lost his right to vote because he had um, run into some trouble with the law when he was a kid. Um, And now he's in his 70s, and his health isn't great. And he really wanted to be able to vote. And to be able to talk to a voter and talk about what he could do to get his right to vote back and help him vote um, sure, he might not make, you know, that one vote might not actually tip the balance, or well, it could, given our elections are so close these days, but it means a
1: lot to individuals. Right, so that's one of the, the, the interesting examples of that, that folks can help a voter with, but, but even going back to the sort of basic ones about where do I vote, am I registered, what photo ID, that's actually complex one, believe it or not, and no surprise given the it's probably going to be even more complex given the, the most recent decisions that have come down because will all the polling place workers be appropriately educated? Um, provisional ballots, so if you don't have maybe the photo ID you're supposed to have, can you vote, how is that vote counted? And and one of the things that I wanted to say about the value of, of election protection is was a personal example of a friend of mine who was a partner at a law firm. This was a couple years ago, a local election um, in Alexandria. She had two small kids. She had to wait in line an hour and a half. You know, they're with her, they're starving. She gets up and they say, do you have your photo ID? She's like, no. And this was before Virginia had long implemented our current rules. Um, And they said, sorry, you can't vote. And so she left. But because she had like a three-year-old and a five-year-old who were starving and she just waited an hour and a half, she didn't vote. Well, if she had called us, we would have said, you can vote provisionally. You need to say, I can vote provisionally. Give me my ballot, then you sign an affidavit and whatnot. And, 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 and if this is a partner at a law firm who doesn't have the confidence or doesn't think to ask, you can only imagine what so many people in the U.S., what their response is if they're told to leave or, or with incorrect information or they have no idea. So I, I, I appreciate that, that EP, even with the most basic questions, provides very valuable, help to voters and then of course within that you'll get the big problems that impact a lot of voters that we can try and solve as well
2: or even along the lines of very simple questions a lot of voters we get calls from don't have access to the internet right Um, and so for us sitting at our hotline center it's very easy you know it takes under a minute to look up a polling place given someone's address but for that voter uh, it might be a trip to the public library or maybe they have to wait for a kid to come by Um, to help them navigate the internet or whatever it is so it's really just providing the resources that are very easy for our trained volunteers but are tougher for other people to access
0: arusha that's an amazing point because i think listening to some of this you might think well this is just a let me google that for you you know sort of project but these people cannot get that information themselves and if you aren't sure what time your polls close Call and find out, you know, it, it can make all the difference to to these people and their, their right to vote. So I think it's a it's an and important point to emphasize. It
1: is and, and, and the second follow up point I'm gonna make, because then law firms are gonna say, Well, why is this pro bono? If you're saying all we're doing is looking up voter registration, that's not pro bono. Anybody could do that. Um, we do get a lot of those calls, but the issue is we get a lot of those other calls and we can't screen those out. And so Um, We do need trained legal volunteers to take those calls who can answer and help with those other problems and real issues that come up. And the photo ID issue, you know, we're sort of laughing about this, but there are going to be possibly lots and lots of issues. And in particular because of the recent decisions, polling place workers aren't going to always have it straight. And so voters need to be able to call someone who knows the law and can say, under the law, you can do A. Yeah. So it, it's really critical that, that we have the trained legal volunteers.
2: I'm nodding my head because what we find frequently is that poll workers haven't been trained properly or they have the wrong information or for whatever reason they're kind of spreading um, misinformation. And so to be able to have a voter who, who, who might talk to a poll worker and be like, that just doesn't seem right, like I thought photo ID, I I didn't think photo ID was required to be able to call us and so we can clarify it for that voter but we can also, as Nancy was mentioning, you know, get in touch with our local partners on the ground who can then get in touch with the local election officials and then kind of stop the systemic problem um, just because that one voter calls.
0: Yeah, that's another great point, right, how boots on the ground or the information that you receive, it can percolate, this could be a problem, we need to do education in that precinct before this really right. gets out I mean, of hand they,
1: they can do it day up right yeah we our local person then yeah. talks to the right. appropriate local official and they call the polling place and say hey yeah we and I got go. stop saying these things I'll add just in terms of, again of how
2: we work with our local partners that we do try really hard especially in our targeted states to set up meetings with local election officials so for instance I work in Virginia right now and we're working with our local partners to go through and meet with the voting, the voter registrars at each county that we're going to be most active in, so that we build that relationship with them. So then on election day, if one of our lead volunteers calls, they already know that lead volunteer. It's, it's Bob who they met with in September, not you know Bob who they're talking to the, for the first time on November eighth. Um, so it, it, there is a longer term strategy there as well in building those partnerships.
0: Night. I think it is incredibly important to people who may not feel comfortable, right, something's fishy, that doesn't really seem to be what they read in the paper or it sounds wrong, the difference it makes when they can say, now, I talked to a lawyer, right? I, I really, I just, they're really right, you know, you're really wrong. It can be a difficult situation and often there's an imbalance in power or privilege or education, so being able to have backing is, is important.
1: And also that, despite the fact that many of us have the internet in our hand, many of the folks who call don't, but many do. I mean, how you distill the information is very difficult. <laughs> there's there's too much, right? Yeah. So to be able to call and get a quick answer, a quick simple answer is also a critical resource.
0: Yeah, and I think you know. As you know, our election laws are so complicated and they are varied and variable across the country and they are ever changing. So no doubt there will be confusion and even with the best of intentions confused, confusion. Not every confusion is malicious. It's just confusion. True. That's a problem too. So as Nancy knows, within your own work at the Lawyers Committee, but also in the world, it's a crowded marketplace of pro bono opportunities. So what's your best pitch for why people should get involved and do EP?
1: Well, I, I, Arusha gave a great answer earlier, but in, in, and we'll go back to that shortly. But I mean, for those with limited time to do an hour and a half training and do a three-hour shift, awesome. Um, a second reason is, and we've been talking about this, election protection's been around for 12 years. We are, you know, very established, and generally we know really we know what we're doing. We've got strong infrastructure in place, good systems, and so that's always, you know, a nice thing when you're volunteering your time. Um, and and the third is, to me, hopefully the most important, which is what Arusha was talking about, and some of her examples is just, you know voting is our most basic right as American citizens and to be able to help others who sh- you know are eligible and should be able to cast their vote and have that vote counted is is tremendous whether you live in a blue red or purple state or yellow I mean you know it does it just doesn't matter every citizen should be able to vote and have their have their vote counted and I'll add that I think
2: my pitch to my friends who are associates and partners at law firms is just that it's a lot of fun and it's a way to really be engaged. So, for instance, you know, everyone's talking about the presidential campaign right now, um, and it's a way to be engaged and actually make a difference without making a huge commitment of time if you don't want to. If you do want to make a larger commitment of time, we will also work with those volunteers. But that, you know, when I talk to my friends who I've recruited to come be volunteers for us, on election day, they end their shifts and they're just abuzz with the energy, um, and they just want to talk about all the people they talk to and all these crazy stories they got and the people they met. And, and you know, the fellow volunteers you meet are also totally fascinating. And um, you know, I don't want to you know pitch it as a networking event, but like it definitely is a plus. You you meet really interesting people. You meet lawyers who are at firms, who are in government, who are at pro bono organizations. Um, so it's just a lot of fun.
1: In addition to all the things. Nancy said, um, and I have one more I just thought of. It's not just about the presidential election. Voters who are voting in that are also voting in their state and local yeah. elections. And if you're helping them to vote the presidential, that means you're also helping them to vote their local school board members or their other, you know, county officials. And those officials have the biggest impact on your day-to-day life. And so you know remember that as a volunteers also. Favorite. And I would add that you know a lot of races are just really close
2: so you know maybe you maybe we get a ton of calls from a certain county um, and and those calls actually do end up having an impact. Um, for instance we got some calls in 2014 from a couple counties in Virginia that were having problems with voting machines because a lot of voting machines were bought over ten years ago and I can never keep a laptop for longer than three years, so the idea of keeping a computer running for 10 years um, is pretty crazy, and so these machines were feeling their age and and breaking down, uh, and we got some calls, and because of those calls, we were able to submit testimony to the Virginia Board of Elections and help get those machines decertified, so that now, in 2016, hopefully, knock on wood, um, you know, those voters in those jurisdictions will be able to cast their ballots without machines um, flipping who they voted for, which was the case in 2014. Um, so you know it can have a real impact or another example that comes to mind is in 2014 I was sitting in our hotline room with a volunteer the um, and I think I was filling in as the captain at that point and the volunteer took a call and he kind of put them on hold and he's like you know this, volu- this voter who just called was telling me that the poll worker uh, this is an early vote situation, that the poll worker had told them that they were leaving early that day, that they had to go pick up their kid from soccer at 3.30, and so he was going to close the polling place at 3.30. Well, you don't get to just decide that, you know, you have to go pick up your kid. And so the volunteer and I discussed it, and both, you know, we were like, no, that that poll worker has the wrong information. So we chatted about it, and, dis- you know, the volunteer actually decided he would take the step and call... The county registrar and inform them and the county registrar was very appreciative that we had flagged that one of his people he had hired had the wrong information and so they were able to go and tell the poll worker to keep the polling place open and so the early vote place was kept open for you know until it was properly time for it to close but that was just an example of you know this vote this volunteer answers the call we chat about it and then we get to keep this polling place open and so we don't know how many more people voted at that place but um, probably a handful
0: yeah, bottom line, making a difference, and social, and convenient, and important, and on and on and on. It's, it's incredibly compelling, and rip from the headlines, and don't whine, get involved. Um, they, the proof is in the pudding, right, because you have so many repeat volunteers they wouldn't come back if they didn't have a good experience. And and part of being an evolved program demonstrates that. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. And Nancy danced around this. And it's not a confrontational question. You hear it all the time. And I'm sure some listeners are wondering, how is this not partisan, right? How do you guard against either the reality or the perception that just because it has to do with elections, you know, surely it must be. So how do you explain or allay concerns or or fears of reality or perception?
2: I mean, we are completely nonpartisan. We have volunteers from every political party in the room, and part of our training is
1: emphasizing that it's nonpartisan. And you know, we only work with part uh, with nonpartisan coalitions. Um, and maybe just as an example, I mean, we're in we're in like all the states. I mean, we do work, we have a big program in Texas. Uh, We have a huge program in Chicago. I mean, those tend to go traditionally one way or the other. So, um, you know, we just don't care who we're helping. We just strongly believe in the right to vote. Um, And again, the training and our partners and where we're working show our um, non-partisan status.
0: And I think that's where your track record comes in handy, too, because I'm sure this was a really big issue at creation,
1: right? Uh oh, was a concern, absolutely. Right?
0: And as time goes by, you have a track record to rely on, to say, this is about the process. This is about our rights. This isn't about determining an outcome. This isn't about you know, sides, it's about voters, it's about the process, it's about our rights, so access to the ballot. Absolutely, absolutely. So you both shared um, some colorful stories already. Do you have any other sort of meaningful or moving stories that you wanted to share?
2: Sure, so I think there's a ton that come to mind which is part of the privilege of being able to work at a place like Lawyer's Committee. But you know, in addition to helping get uh, junky old voting machines decertified and new machines put in place and helping keep polling places open, we've also been able to help people get their voting rights restored after they've served time, um, which is a really satisfying thing to be able to do to give people that second chance. Um, And also larger issues so for instance I guess this actually is not technically EP but for instance getting early vote locations set up on Native American reservations Um, I in my current role I work a lot with Native American folks on voting rights issues and we'll see that people in rural areas have to drive Incredibly long distances to cast their ballot so right now I have one client who actually has a nine-hour round trip to vote in person Um, and that's just crazy and so being able to use some of the information we get from EP to identify those issues and then get a solution so that people don't have
1: to drive nine hours to vote is is an incredible experience we've also had you know just as an example and I I referenced this earlier um, Instances were outside of polling places. You had police car, police officers parked, and in, in this one instance, it wasn't necessarily that the police officer was trying to be intimidating, but in the community that he was, he was at, it was, it was actually making people feel uncomfortable and not wanting to go vote. And so we were able to approach the police officer, one of our field folks, and and he was very like, oh, sorry, I, I, that wasn't my intentions. I will leave the polling polling place. So. Even there, where there's not malicious intentions, we were able to have a positive impact, and and I, those kind of stories just just go on and on and on and on and on.
2: Yeah, I think one of my favorite aspects is when you take that call. If you're a hotline volunteer, even if that call is just for two minutes, in those two minutes, I feel like I become a team with that voter, and it's kind of like, okay, Mrs. You know Smith, who can't find her polling place or doesn't know what kind of ID, like we're in this together and we're gonna figure this out. And then, um, you know, it's just really satisfying and, and the voters are most often very appreciative.
0: We talk a lot about pro bono being about human connections and I think that's what's happening, right? right? Even in a short call, you're making yeah. a connection and you're helping someone be more human, you know? exercise their rights, it's amazing. So do, um, do you have in your life for your professions pro bono or access to justice role models?
1: saw that question. <laughs> I think it's, like for me, it's a difficult one. I, uh, so when I came out of law school, turned down the law firm job, um, I would joke with friends who went to law firms that they'd gone to the dark side. And now I fully appreciate how those law firms and volunteer lawyers from firms play a critical role in helping us secure equal justice. And so while I don't have maybe one person in particular, I just really embrace the role of law firms and in-house counsel and their pro bono programs and law schools and their pro bono programs just that to me is my role model the fact that the legal profession has this pro bono ethic and that we follow through.
0: Yeah and that the profession isn't black or white right it's not private bar public interest there's a big gray area that we can all work together there's so many problems we don't have the luxury to be so siloed that way so yeah I think that's a great way of thinking about it
2: yeah I would agree I think uh, one of the cases I was recently working on my um, our pro bono co-counsel was a woman who I actually went to law school with and we were just um, coincidentally put on the same case but she grew up actually in a part of Montana where there's a high Native American population. I think she might have even grown up on a reservation. And so she brought this incredible insight to the work we were doing that played this huge role. And I just appreciated you know, all our pro bono co-counsel, but especially in this case, the fact that she brought this insight and that this was on top of you know, other stuff she was already doing. So, um, yeah
0: and that you could have a reunion, so that's personally lovely. (laughs) When you're up at 1 a.m.
2: preparing for depositions, it's a lot more fun to be doing it with a former
0: class. With people that you like, yeah. So we have covered so much territory. It's been amazing. Are there any final takeaways or things that we didn't get to or things you want to emphasize that you want to just be sure we leave listeners knowing and understanding?
1: Yeah, so if you're interested in volunteering, um, please go to um, the Lecture Protection website, you can Google that, or it's 866 rvoteorg again, 866 org, um, and you can sign up, and then you'll be notified once the specific shifts and trainings are up, and you'll get the email, and then you'll be able to sign up directly, um, uh, so we, we hope you'll do that, but in tandem with that, if you are at a firm or you're in-house at a legal department, make sure you're pro bono counsel, the person who is heading up your pro bono program is aware of your interests so um, that they also will notify other folks in your office when my emails start coming around. And and perhaps the last thing is just a little plug for the early morning shift. <laughs> we have the hardest time getting volunteers to show up at these call centers at 6 a.m. But that's when the polls open in many places and that's when the most calls we get. So I, I had to do a little plug towards that. Yeah, it's but.
0: perfect. It's like your justice workout, right? You gotta go to the gym early or you don't get to it. So do your problem bono right. work early right. and then move on. Yeah. yeah, I'll
2: say it's a very interesting time to be on the phones as well because there's a lot of issues in the morning when poll workers are getting there or not getting there, as the case
0: can be. Right, yeah. right, why is my place shut? Why are the doors right. locked? Right, What's right. going on, right. yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: and I'll also make a pitch for our social media platforms, so you can visit us on Facebook or on Twitter, um, and we do have folks monitoring those, so if you send us a message through one of those means, we should get it, uh, no promises, but we do um, try to keep those updated.
0: That's amazing. Well, Arusha and Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. It was, a pleasure, it was a pleasure speaking with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to our discussion with Nancy and Arusha. We thank them for their time and for sharing their expertise with us. To learn more about election protection, visit the coalition's dedicated website, 866ourvote.org. That's 866 866- O-U-R-V-O-T-E dot org. Additional episodes of the Pro Bono Happy Hour can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about the Pro Bono Institute, visit our website at probonoinst.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.